This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you in this hot summer day and glad you can be here to join us as we open God's word. It's good to be back here in the studio. We've been out for a few weeks. And if you have a question uh, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning the Bible or maybe some issue you're facing in your life or ministry or family and you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859. Or you can call us toll free at 877-WAGP, our call letters, WAGP 780. Or a lot of people just... uh, Email us here directly into the studio, and you can do that at TBL, stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll jump right in. All right, Pastor, we've got a number of uh, questions that are lining up, and all three lines are lit up, so I'm hoping I'm picking on the right one. I've been told it's line three, so let's go to that one. Good morning. Uh, You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Pastor, I just wanted to offer some words of encouragement. Um, I feel that my family is blessed beyond words by, by CBC and what you've done for us. And through your teachings, my wife and I have been blessed enough to share the plan of salvation and lead eight people to Christ. That's wonderful. And it, it's through men like you and, and your staff and Pastor Matt and the choir that it enables us to have a glimmer of hope in this this terrible, terrible world. You know, we we always say, like Billy Graham says, our hope, our home is not here. It's we're we're just traveling through this world. Our home is somewhere else. But we pray for you. We pray for the church. And but I just I just wanted to share that with you. I think every now and then, you know, our pastor needs a word of encouragement. Well, thank you for calling. I really appreciate that. Those kind words, and we appreciate your prayers for what we're doing here and. In uh, here in, in South Carolina. Lord bless you, brother. Let's go to the next call. All right, indeed. We've got another call. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Carl. Um, thank you for taking my call. My question is about Ezra and Nehemiah. As I'm just reading through, I was getting a little confused as to when Artaxerxes was um, king. It seems like they had some people accuse uh, the people in Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, and then he stopped their work. And then under Darius, it got started up again. And then when it goes into Nehemiah, it was Artaxerxes again. And I think I'm just a little confused. And then the second question along those same line is the two lists in um, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah seems like he's having an original thought. He says that the Lord laid it on his heart to do this, and then he found the list. And I was wondering if he's just copying the list or if he took another um, count of the people 
And those are my two questions. Thanks. All right. I'll just hang up. Uh, you might want to listen to my series on the book of Nehemiah, and it is online. I, I've, it's been a long time. I should probably reteach that book, but I, I taught it over a decade ago, uh, maybe 11, 12 years ago. But it is at Search the Scriptures dot org and if you click on you know sermons preached you'll see nehemiah and a whole series of sermons where we go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse you've got a lot of questions here but let me let me share some perspective to begin with that might help you put these two books together really three books uh you have ezra nehemiah and esther and they're found together here in our english bibles uh the book of ezra is written by a priest by the name of ezra a priest and a scribe, and he, um, you know, lives at a time where he, one, writes what happened before he lived, and then what took place uh, during his own life in ministry. So in chapters one through six, Ezra records some historical issues that had unfolded. And of course, if you were with us in our series on Daniel, you'll see some similar names uh, because uh, it's in that time frame. These guys lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So if uh, you will recall, uh, God had warned the people of Israel in the northern kingdom that if they didn't repent, that he would judge them through a foreign people known as Assyria. And so the Assyrians come down in 722 BC and carry away the 10 Northern tribes. He then warned the Southern tribes through different prophets that if they didn't repent, he would judge them through the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians come down and they are carried away for 70 years. The 70 years is over. And uh, if you come to the end of chapter six of Ezra, you read about this decree. You can also read about it in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, that Cyrus the king writes, and it's the providence of God. He puts it in Cyrus's heart to let the Jewish people go back and rebuild their temple. Ezra journeys from Babylon to Jerusalem. He becomes a part of that group, but what you read here in the earlier chapters don't concern Ezra directly. He's recording history, but what takes place in his life begins to unfold in chapter seven. And I should add that between chapters six and seven, there's a 58 year gap where there's a woman by the name of Esther, and there's a book that carries her name. Uh, she lives in that time frame, and the events of Esther take place. So when you realize that, then things really start to come together. So Nehemiah is one of these fellows who lives after the Babylonian exile is over. His heart is broken because he understands that the walls are not built. And of course, without walls, you cannot have a secure place in which to uh, build a temple because you have to have a secure city in order to be able to, to build the temple. So one deals with the building of the um, temple, namely Ezra, and Nehemiah's focus is on the building of the wall. So these three books kind of tuck in together, and when you put that together, it will really um, sink in. What I suggest you do, because the, we've got so many questions that have come in, is go ahead and listen to the whole series of Nehemiah. I think... 
uh, your detailed questions that would really are armchair questions in terms of the list, the signers of the document, like in chapter 10 of Nehemiah and so forth, they're going to be answered in my series on Nehemiah. And I suggest though you start in chapter one because there is a flow of thought and I build the truths together as they unfold one upon the other. That's a great question. Sounds like a young caller and who's studying the Word of God, and I appreciate that. Let's go to the next one. All right, Bob from Seabrook, South Carolina, says it's uh, estimated that we have 100 billion stars. Is it fair to say that we have 33 billion demons and 77 million uh, angels? Also, is it true that angels are far more powerful than demons? Well, first of all, uh, let me define some terms here. Angels and demons are both angels. Some are what the scripture calls holy angels or elect angels. And then a term is used to designate a third of the angels that rebelled against God. And today we refer to them as demons. So when you're speaking about demons, you're talking about angels, just a different classification of angels. And then you could further take uh, the fallen angels and break them down into a number of different categories. Now, as to the number of angels, it is true that the, there's a lot of terms and designations that are given uh, that uh, Hebraisms that are used to describe angels. And I have a course on angelology where I cover these. I think it's in the very front lesson. And so if you go to search the scriptures.org and click on one of the Institute of Biblical Study courses. One is on angels, and we deal with this subject specifically in all the different names that are given, like sons of God. Now, the term sons of God can refer to humans, or uh, the term sons of God, B'nai Elohim, can use, be used in reference to, to angels. And it can be used in reference to holy angels or fallen angels. So context is everything. Um, with that said, in terms of the number of angels, um, and the reason I bring up these different designations is because angels are compared to the starry hosts. And so when you look up in the sky and you see all these stars, you know, God likens the angels to the stars. Does that mean that there's as many angels as there are stars? I, I, I don't think you could make that conclusion, though there's a likeness. And again, I cover the, the parallels in the course in angelology, but there are no definite figures as to in terms of the exact number of angels. But what we do find in a number of passages found in the Bible is that there's a lot of them. Uh, if you were with us in our series in Daniel's, uh, in the prophet Daniel, uh, in the seventh chapter, he has this vision of the ancient of days, which is a reference to God the Father and of the Son of Man. In fact, we recently kind of intersected Daniel 7 with Revelation 1 because there are parallels in and we're not surprised because the son of man is a reference to the Messiah himself and the parallels between the son of man and even some of the designations given for God, the father, the ancient of days are found in revelation chapter one, because of course, Jesus himself said to see me, you've seen the father. But um, he says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat and his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. 
And so these, of course, if you know the passage, is a reference to angels. And when you come to the book of Revelation, the same reference is given. Uh, And we'll study this, and we'll study this subject, uh, not in super detail, but as it relates to the Revelation. Similar terminology found in Hebrews 12, similar terminology found in the book of Jude, that there are myriads upon myriads. Uh, The word myriad is a is a mathematical term that means tens of thousands. So when you say myriads upon myriads, 10,000 times 10,000. So if you wanted a literal number, God is saying a hundred million, but I don't think he's giving us a literal number. He's just giving us, there's a whole bunch of angels, myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. And that doesn't surprise us because they are uh, holy angels. God's ministering servants sent out to render help to those who will inherit salvation. So they serve the church in every worship service, wherever it takes place around the world. God tells us in his letter uh, from Paul to the Corinthians in first Corinthians 11, that there are angels that are present that watch the church, that observe the church, that learn from us who have been saved <laughs> by the grace of God. Um, the second part of his question, uh, Ricky, I think he asked something about, yes. um, um, is it true that angels are far more powerful than again, demons, but yeah, they're yeah. all angels. So yeah. Um, good question. Um, I, I would take you to a passage in the book of Jude. Let me just turn there for just a moment, uh, to Jude. There's only one chapter in, so in Jude nine, we don't usually say Jude chapter one, verse nine, but because there's only one chapter. So we just say Jude nine. There we read, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, this is something that we don't find in the Old Testament, but God gives to Jude by direct revelation. It might have been a, um, you know, a, ver- <laughs> a verbal tradition that had been spoken of for centuries. But at this point in human history, God Uh, takes that verbal tradition and he solidifies it as absolute truth because he puts it in the canon of scripture. So there was a dispute between Michael, the archangel. He's the only named archangel in scripture. It's possible that Gabriel was one too. Um, But uh, you know, and the the hymns say archangels and glory. Well, we don't know that there is a plurality of archangels. There may very well be, but we do know of at least one named angel who's Michael, the archangel Uh, When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him, uh, against the devil, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So it tells me a lot. Uh, We know angels are greater in power and might than men are. We know that while they are powerful, they are not omnipotent. They are created beings. But it does tell me something about the respect that we are to have for the power of the evil one to say that one is stronger than the other. I don't think you can conclude that, but I think uh, you can conclude that Michael who had a deep respect uh, for the authority that Satan himself had. And it might've been that Satan was once an archangel himself. He was certainly a supreme angel of sorts and none like him. And when we study Revelation chapter 12 will deal with the fall of Satan and those third of the holy angels that fell with him and became what today we call demons. But it does tell us something in terms of how we deal in the demonic realm. 
that we don't go in our own authority or power because angels, both holy and fallen, have real power from God. And we go in the name of Jesus and we say, the Lord rebuke you. And if Michael, the great archangel, did that, my, that should be our stance and our attitude as well. That's a good question. Uh, it's a short answer, but I have a whole course that answers that uh, question that Bob from Seabrook asked in much more detail. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible liner, line. And a listener would like to know your thoughts on what study Bible would be best for her 14-year-old son. Well, if he's 14, and uh, unless he has some kind of, you know, dyslexic problem or, you know, reading challenge, any adult study Bible would be fine uh, for your son. And there's many good ones that are out there. I don't think you will find two pastors in America who agree on every single point in the Bible, but on all the main things and all the major things we do agree upon. And uh, I think you would find certainly John MacArthur's study Bible, which is now in the new American standard as well. That would be a great one. Uh, Charles Ryrie, who went to heaven in the last year or so, uh, his study Bible is also a very strong, uh, good study Bible that I think is helpful. Uh, there are others that I'm sometimes hesitant to recommend because while they are strong in some places, they're not always strong in other places. And sometimes they give some comments that I think are somewhat off. And, and so I can be reluctant sometimes to say, yeah, go out and buy this one because I rec- because some people think, well, I'm affirming every single thing said in the study Bible and I'm not with any study Bible. Uh, there are some issues we would call them secondary issues that uh, are not absolutely critical to being a believer, but you end up taking a position on them somewhere uh, so, uh, but some, some, some study Bibles, maybe they take a loose view of creation or where you stand on it. And I, and I tend to really hesitate giving any kind of endorsement, but those would be two that I think would be uh, useful to you and uh, a good starting place. Very good. Our next listener in, is in, uh, center, Connecticut, uh, and they would like to know some, uh, Answers from the book of Genesis. They write, Genesis 1-2 speaks of a formless mass of earth. Then on the third day, God created land. In trying to understand the difference between this earth and land, I stumbled across the gap theory at the jkvbible.org, something I never heard before. How is verse 2 of Genesis reconciled to day 3, and what are your thoughts on the gap theory? And Then they've got a second question. Uh, which we can hit when you're done with this one. All right. So let me uh, first address this. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So the gap theory in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty. So the gap theory basically is the position that says that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, a major event took place. That God originally created the earth, Genesis 1-1, everything was perfect. And they would argue that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, Satan fell. And with the fall of Satan, it left a a void, formless world, so to speak. And uh, with that, um, they are able to justify an old earth. So people who take an old earth theory that the world is millions, if not billions of years old, 
this is the way they reconcile science with the Bible. And there have been some people like one of the study Bibles that I, I didn't endorse, but it's an interesting study Bible. It was put out by a guy named C.I. Schofield. And Schofield actually was the one who um, promoted the gap theory and made it popular amongst evangelicals. Most conservative evangelicals today do not believe the gap theory. Uh, they believe in a young earth creation. And there, there are many reasons for it. And, and by the way, I should say just parenthetically that the gap theory is different from theistic evolution. Theistic evolution says that God uh, used the process of evolution to create the world. So they don't deny evolution. They just say that evolution happened uh, by the hand of God. And that's how this world came into existence. And the long day theory, which is another uh, theory or the day age theories, it's sometimes called. And, I, and by the way, I cover all this in my series in the book of Genesis. They say, again, trying to deal with uh, science uh, that between the days, there were millions, if not billions of years. And so there were long blocks of time. Well, again, I dismantle both theistic evolution because it denies the plain teaching of scripture and the day age theory in no way fits the scriptural pattern, not to mention God's divine commentary. You can't have plants and, um, you know, billions of years between events for the uh, writing of Genesis one to literally take place. So I, I kind of go through that in my series in Genesis and you might want to listen to the first few uh, sermons, but I do deal with the gap theory and I don't buy it. It's um, I don't think we should try to make the Bible fit science. Look, the Bible is not a scientific book uh, in terms of it's not a book of science. It's not written for that purpose. It's primarily a book of salvation. But whenever whenever God deals or addresses a scientific issue, he does with absolute authority. And so I have a course in bibliology. And in one section of that course, I deal with a lot of the science issues that the Bible addresses and um, whether it's uh, currents in the ocean or whatever it might be. Um, but the, the gap theory does not fit because what you end up having is uh, death and uh, you know, a fossil record before death entered into the world. So they say, well, there are these large animals, dinosaurs and so forth that walked upon the earth and, and then Satan fell. And that's why there's no dinosaurs today. And then God started all over in Genesis one, three, and he, he recreates the world. But again, that doesn't fit because Romans five and verse 12 is very specific that sin entered into the world and with sin came death. And so the Bible is very clear that death follows the fall of man. And the fall is recorded in Genesis chapter three, not to mention at the end of the creation account it, it the last verse in Genesis chapter one, God sees all that he makes and it's very, very good. So it appears the fall of Satan and, and some people would debate in terms of the time of the fall of Satan, but clearly what we have happening between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 is not a gap of time because the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. So it's really impossible to hold that view without having death before the fall of man. And that clearly did not happen. And it would deny what God says in Genesis uh, one thirty one that all that he made was very, very good. Um, so there were a few more questions okay, that were yeah, along the yeah, same okay. vein. I'll continue. You've answered some of them, and 
as you said, a lot of them can be answered in your course in Genesis. But let's go ahead. Um, where do the creatures we refer to as prehistoric fit into the account? And were the young of the species taken into the ark? And finally, how do Christians explain the discrepancy of when scientists say these creatures roamed the earth and when we believe creation happened? Well, again, you know, science may have the latest word, but they don't have the last word. At one point, science definitively, authoritatively said the world was flat. And of course, there were men like Christopher Columbus who read the scriptures that described it as a circle. And so he was not afraid to sail thinking he'd fall off the end of the earth. You say, well, that was just a bunch of stupid people back then. Well, they were pretty bright people, Um, but that didn't mean that they were right. And so, again, I think it's my third sermon in my Genesis series. I deal with the subject of dinosaurs, but dinosaurs are found in the Bible. Uh, The word dinosaur is a rather recent word in the English language. It's a combination of a couple Greek words. that means a great lizard. But nonetheless, it became uh, a term that enters into the realm of science in the late 1800s to describe large creatures that once lived on the earth. Were there such large creatures? Of course, the Bible speaks of them in Isaiah and in the Psalms. And again, I walk through these passages very carefully in the series on Genesis. But yeah, they were there. Uh, Let's see. I see Rick just brought up um, six greatest days of creation. I I think I covered in either the third or yeah, the third sermon. So uh, it's the third sermon in the Genesis series. It's uh, entitled Genesis 1, 24 to 31. Um, the question is, you know, did dinosaurs roam on the earth before men? And the Bible's answer is no. The Bible is very clear that dinosaurs were created on the same day that Adam was. And again, before the fall, there was a certain um, pleasantness between the creation of the world and man, such that when Adam fell, the world fell with it. Um, we have fossil records of dinosaurs in great creatures. In fact, we have artistic renderings of dinosaurs in the Chinese culture as recently as the 12th century. Uh, Some people in Ireland drew some artistic renderings of dinosaurs in the 17th century. So it might be that some of these so-called dinosaurs did not by any stretch, um, you know, go out millions of years ago. In fact, I believe in a young earth creation that when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. When Adam and Eve were created, they weren't infants. They were full grown adults and the trees didn't take decades to develop. Uh, They were full fruit bearing trees. So God created the world with the appearance of age. And I think what you have going in Genesis one, two, you know, where the world seems void and empty, but, but, but there's some substance there is you have a picture of God who's like a potter and he's, he's compared to a potter in his creative abilities in, in the prophet Isaiah. And so you see God taking, um, in creating a piece by piece by piece, the creation as we have it today. So there are dinosaurs and I think they were here a lot uh, sooner than later. Uh, they were, they, they lived on the earth since the world was created. And again, I, I take the view that this world is less than 10,000 years old. It's difficult to put a precise date on it. Bishop Usher said, well, it was, it was created 4004 BC. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to have him find out his date was right. 
Um, but in either case, they went extinct. Uh, every year, there are animals, birds, reptiles that go extinct. And I think we have a biblical rationale as to why they went extinct. Uh, it appears before the fall that there was a, a continuity in the climates around the world. In fact, God didn't uh, even send rain until the time of the great flood. And so he watered the earth with the mist from below. But when the great flood came, God opened the fountains of the deep and he brought rain from above. And it appears the dynamics of the world after the flood changed. And so even the eating habits of man need to change. And so God dictates the need to eat meat and animals and so forth um, because of the climactic differences that unfolded on the earth. Uh, it's not by accident that they have found a woolly mammoth up in the Arctic region with uh, greenery in his mouth. Uh, how did that happen? Well, if there was a polar freeze on both ends of the planet, that happened because maybe the canopy theory is correct that, again, the Bible says uh, God watered the earth from a mist from below. If you've ever had a terranium, sometimes kids do it as a science project. They take an aquarium and they create a sealed unit and there's kind of a misting that takes place. If the world was like that and there was a canopy around the world, which seems reasonable and there are certainly great scholars of science who have argued for this and not all of them Christian in uh, Henry Morris in his book, the Genesis flood, which is a classic work. Uh, it was done in the sixties, but with incredible insight in this Stanford pr professor, kind of the Harvard of the West coast uh, wrote a tremendous, tremendous work on uh, what could have happened at the fall. But if God took all of this canopy vapor that was around the earth and he condescended it, it would have created the polar ice caps and we would have the kind of fossil record that we, that we see um, uh, in science. And so there's other explanations as to how to uh, get to that same position. So when did dinosaurs go extinct? I don't know. Uh, maybe they were still around in some places of the world in the 12th century. Maybe uh, Nessie the Loch Ness Monster was not all that far-fetched. Maybe some people did see them. In fact, the Japanese, I think it was 1978, uh, brought a dinosaur-like water creature off the coast of New Zealand. The Japanese fishermen, they needed a crane to host it up. They hosted it up on the ship. It was absolutely huge. They've never been able to identify what kind of a sea creature it was. It filled up a big part of this large ship and it was already dead and it was rotting and they took pictures of it. You can see them online and the dinosaur uh, stamp came out the next year, I think in 79, that the Japanese made. They called it the dinosaur stamp because the creature could never definitively be identified and it was huge, absolutely like no animal that we've ever seen out of the out of the out of the sea, except maybe the great white shark, uh, but great white whales, but it wasn't a whale. Uh, it had a long, long neck, uh, many, 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 many feet long. So God alone knows exactly when all the dinosaurs went distinct, but there are biblical answers uh, to your questions. And I, again, I would uh, point you to my first three 
sermons in my Genesis series, and I think you'd find that helpful. And that kind of answers the other question they had about um, were some of the uh, animals young? Because, yeah, they in were. That's the, yeah. that's the only way you could fit them in. Right? Well, if you're the Lord and you're going to have uh, animals on a on an ark for a period of a year, it's not, you know, they're not on there for 40 days like most people think. Uh, they're there. The biblical account is very specific. They're on the ark for a year. Uh, you know, did, did God bring in dinosaur eggs? I don't know. He could have. Uh, did he bring in young creatures? Well, if I were the Lord God, I wouldn't bring in some old behemoth or even an old tiger who's near death. A hippopotamus just died a couple days ago. I saw it was the oldest living recorded hippopotamus lived to be 67 years old. They usually only live 20 years, but I wouldn't bring in some old beast. I'd bring in babies and young ones and and again, God's powerful in terms of how he managed the whole thing. He brought the animals to Noah. So Noah didn't have to go out and round them up and say, I need a tiger. And, and again, there is a good rationale for how all the animals could have been in one place upon the earth. If the climactic regions of the earth were similar around the planet, then you would find tigers and lions and giraffes uh, all across the planet and not just in one particular region. In either case, God brought the animals to Noah. God is a God of might and power. And uh, in fact, I'll be speaking with Ken Ham later this month up at the Ark. And uh, it's an incredible model that he has built. The Amish actually did the work, uh, but they designed a a life-size ark that you can tour. And if you haven't been there, you should go. I have not been there since it was completed. I, I went up for a personal tour with Ken when it was under construction, but now it's completed. And they go through the whole issue of how could you feed so many animals and hibernation issues and all kinds of things that God supernaturally and powerfully did and gave Noah the wisdom in terms of how to pull it off. I mean, obviously everything that God has done or said is not recorded in the Bible. Sometimes we have, for instance, a, a sermon that is a summary of the sermon. Uh, we have a summary of one of Paul's sermons, but he preached late into the night. And I'm sure if they re recorded the whole sermon, it would be longer than the whole book of Acts. But there's just a brief summary, and there are brief summaries sometimes of what God did. But God obviously gave Noah the specifications for the ark, specifically how to build it, the shape of it, everything. Um, and it's not by accident that um, he wrote that in the scripture. No doubt he gave Noah the wisdom he needed in terms of how to deal with all these animals and how he would pull it off. So I, I suspect that God brought young dinosaurs, baby dinosaurs into the ark and he knew in terms of their growth cycle and everything else and what would happen. And um, he did it just like he said he did it. And, uh, and now they're scattered to different regions of the world, certain animals. Because it appears after the great flood, there was a breaking up of the continents, as I cover in my sermon on Genesis chapter 10. And if you look at the continents, they almost look like you could piece them together like a puzzle. And I don't think that is by accident either. So there's a lot of explanations that we have answers to from the Bible that science doesn't have a clue 
as to what took place and how it happened. That listener in Connecticut, by the way, has been listening to your messages for a while. Le- recently discovered the Bible Line podcast, subscribed, and listened to it during the entire drive from northeastern Connecticut to northern Maine, about seven hours. They thank you for not watering down the scriptures and appreciate how you're using, um, the Lord is using you to feed his hungry soul. Now, our next caller would like to know, when we're born again and we say we're filled with the Spirit, how does that affect us spiritually and physically? Does the power of God give us physical strength as well as spiritual strength? Also, do we use the term filled with the Spirit loosely today? Well, sometimes it is used loosely and terms aren't defined by people and they mix terms, baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. There's a number of different terms and designations that God uses to describe what happens in our life. In fact, we've just finished a a course um, on pneumatology. And so pneumatos is a word for spirit or wind. Most often it's used in reference not to the physical wind, but to the Holy Spirit himself, though it's not by accident that the spirit is likened to wind in John chapter three, when Jesus describes the new birth. But with that said, um, the filling of the spirit is not true of all Christians. The moment we are born again, we are baptized with the spirit and no doubt filled with the spirit. The word filled plurao means to be controlled or directed by. And it's used in a number of different contexts. For instance, there was a group of people in Luke 4 who are filled, plerao, same word, with their anger, and they want to throw Jesus off a cliff. Uh, There's a a passage in uh, the Olivet, not the Olivet, the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel where Jesus said to his disciples, your hearts are filled, plerao, with sadness. And so as they realized what was going to unfold and what Jesus had said that he was leaving them. So to be filled with the spirit is to be under the control and the direction of the spirit of God. And there are things that can prevent the Christian from being filled with the spirit. I have a message. I need to preach it again. I I preach it every two or three years, but it's been about three years since I've preached it on what it means to be a spirit filled Christian. And I'm actually, I hope to write a booklet, um, that would communicate very simply the spirit-filled life. Bill Bright was a great man of God. He founded Campus Crusade for Christ in 1950. And he spoke about the Holy Spirit at a time when a lot of evangelicals were afraid to speak of him because of the charismatic slash Pentecostal excesses. And so people just didn't speak about the Holy Spirit. And yet he's the key to living a godly Christian life. We can't live the Christian life apart from him. He has to fill us and empower us to be the kind of people that God created us to be once we are saved. So the moment you're saved, you're baptized into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit identifies you with God's people wherever they are around the world and forms you as a member of a living temple. Uh, We are called the temple of the Spirit. We're also called living stones that form a larger temple that we call the universal body of Christ. And so there is an affinity that you have wherever you travel in the world and you meet another born again Christian because the same Holy Spirit who lives in you lives in them and that makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. That's called the baptism of the Spirit and we are sealed with him for the day of redemption. So once he comes to live in you, he will never ever leave you. Uh, the sealing of the Spirit, again, like the baptism, Ephesians 1, 13 to 15 happens the moment of your conversion 
and it's never undone as Ephesians 4.30 teaches, which again speaks of our eternal security. Uh, You can't be unborn again and then born again again and then unborn again again and then born again 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 and you can't lose and get your salvation back. Eternal life is forever. So we're never commanded to be sealed or baptized with the Spirit. It is assumed uh, on this side of Pentecost that it is true. But we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit because while He may live in us, while He is resident, it doesn't necessarily mean that He's president. While he is indwelling you, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's infilling you. And so there are things that we can do to prevent him from filling us. So we're told not to grieve the spirit, not to quench the spirit. We're told in the Bible to walk by the spirit and to sow to the spirit. We grieve the spirit when we do those things we shouldn't do. um, What we call sins of commission. And the solution is to confess that sin. Uh, We quench the spirit when we don't do the things that we ought to do. Uh, Those are what we might call sins of omission. So some Christians are not filled with the spirit, not because they are rebelling against specific commands where God says thou shall not, but they are not obeying specific commands where God says thou shalt. And so for instance, if you're not willing to share your faith, you're not going to be a spirit filled Christian walking by the spirit speaks of our moment by moment dependence. When I walk physically one foot is in the air and it's depending on the other foot to keep me stable and balance my weight and everything. Uh, there is a moment by moment, step by step dependence on the spirit. We sow to the spirit and that the spirit of God doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with his word. And so we are to feed daily upon the word of God. And so these are all critical dimensions. Does he give you, does he affect you physically? Well, sure. There is a relation say in the Proverbs between our spiritual health and our physical health. Uh, You can't always draw direct parallels. Christians get sick um, sometimes because uh, they've brought the sickness on themselves. Why are, how can a Christian bring a sickness on himself? Well, some Christians are eating their way into high blood pressure. Uh, They, they eat beyond control. Look, a fruit of the spirit, a fruit of being filled with the spirit is self-control. And so you don't want to dig your own grave with a spoon. So there are obviously physical parallels between uh, the spirit and the body. Some Christians are eaten up by ulcers. What's the cause of an ulcer? Worry. Well, when we're worried and it creates an ulcer, a doctor can give you some medicine to fix the ulcer, but that's just a Band-Aid. It's an important Band-Aid. But the real problem is typically worry. And so... God doesn't want us to be worry warts. He wants us to walk by faith. How do you do that? Well, you have to be filled with the spirit and you have to sow to the spirit uh, truth that will change the way you think that is causing you to worry. Um, Then on the other hand, there are Christians who are spirit filled, who have physical problems that have nothing to do with their lack of being filled with the spirit. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. Uh, God uses sometimes uh, physical hardship for his own glory. Sometimes God will let someone to get sick because he wants them to be in the hospital to witness to a, a nurse. Sometimes God wants a person to be sick. I, I was on the phone earlier with a, a man who visited our church because he, he felt like he was at the end of life and he had serious issues in terms of his heart. And and so God used those serious physical issues to get his attention spiritually. And now he's found Jesus as his savior. And he's at MUSC today. Um, 
and he's hoping to recover from a, a, a major heart procedure. Very weak and burdened for his wife and other people in his family. And but God uses physical sickness for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but you know, does being filled with the Spirit give you strength? He, he might. Uh, there are times when I just have no physical strength seemingly left in me. And I still have a spiritual challenge, a sermon to preach, one more counseling appointment, maybe after 10. Sometimes I say, Lord, I'm, I'm exhausted. These last four counseling appointments just w- sucked everything out of me. Please give me the strength so that I can give this person the attention they need. And then God just comes in and gives you strength beyond your own strength and, and does what only he can pull off. So anyway, that's kind of a broad answer, but I think uh, an important answer to a question that you're asking. Let's go to the next one. Well, this is probably going to be your easiest question okay, of, all the, right. of the day. A uh, listener on Hilton Head Island would like to know, when is your tour to Israel? Ah, yes. Uh, you brought it up here. So the dates are May 7th through 17th, 2018. So we will be going to Israel. And if you go to communitybiblechurch.us or search the scriptures, all one word, dot org, you can pull up and download the brochure and you can register online. I will tell you it is almost filled. Uh, It it is just filled up so fast. Uh, They sent me today uh, saying that we already have 57 people registered and I'm limiting the total to 68. So we basically have 11 spots, and that was as of this morning that are left, and we just opened it up a month ago. So it's gone very, very fast, and once we hit that that number, 68, I will say it's full. Now, I will put some people on a waiting list if uh, someone wants to drop off, and usually with a group of, say, 70 people, there'll be three or four people who will drop off, sickness, death, um, uh, you know, something job issues, something happened. And so we usually would have room for three or four more, uh, but it's just about full. So if you want to go, uh, I would encourage you to go online and uh, lock in and register. It will be a trip of a lifetime. Uh, it will really open the scriptures up to you in a way that you never imagined. I mean, it's not that you have to go to Israel to learn God's word and to benefit from uh, what you read in the Bible. By no means would I ever say that. But I will say that when you begin to physically put some things together in your mind in terms of where this happened and what the place even looked like, uh, some of those visuals are very, very helpful. Not to mention we're in the scriptures all day long on the trip. I'm teaching the Bible all day long. And again, that's something that um, God gives me the strength to do. I couldn't do that on my own except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there you go about strength. Exactly. So uh, it's going to be a great trip. And uh, again, go to communitybiblechurch.us or searchthescriptures.org. Or you can call Community Bible Church directly and ask for Josh Stone. And he will answer any of your questions concerning the upcoming trip of May 2018. And speaking of upcoming items, we've got one this weekend that people might be interested in. Yeah, uh, Mothering from the Heart Conference is going to be on Friday evening and Saturday morning. Uh, This conference is not just for young mothers, it's for women in any 
season of life. It's for grandmothers. It's for older women. Uh, so, and young moms and people who maybe are single, but they want to understand biblical mothering because they're called as Christians to teach the whole counsel of God. And some people may be single their whole life and never physically have children, but God still puts mothering instincts into their life and causes them to teach what God says in his word. The problem is, is that there is so much today that goes under the banner of women's ministries that has very little to do with what we see in the scripture. I, I mean, just a lot of nonsense and it's very sad and disheartening. And, you know, all these women are running from Bible study to Bible study and not really studying and carrying out their biblical admonitions that God gives them. So the first session deals with perspective biblical perspective on mothering. Uh, one of the sessions deals with some of the challenges that mothers face. Uh, um, another session dealing with discipline of children and uh, discipline is not just corporate and physical. It encompasses a broad aspect of uh, building into a child's life and shaping their character and whether it's your child or your grandchild or another child. And so it's going to be a great conference. I would say that uh, every time my wife does this, she used to teach it in our home when we first started Community Bible Church and women would come for like six to eight, 10 weeks. And uh, now she does it in kind of a, what we call the mothering from the heart marathon. And she does it in two days, but it's life changing. And she taught it again last year. And um, a, a week a week later, our granddaughter died, and but when we came back, she her mailbox was filled with you know letters of women who were changed and husbands thanking us that my I got a different wife and there's no childcare for this so guys um, try to make it happen for your wife it will be live streamed at communitybiblechurch.us but quite honestly there's nothing quite like being there. And that's true. Just like on a Sunday morning, there's nothing quite like being there. And there are certain dynamics that will happen for those who are gathered. For instance, just the lunch alone on, on Saturday. But if you're planning to go, you need to register so that you can get the notes because the note-taking outlines are really instrumental. Uh, not to mention that you're locked in for the lunch. So that's coming up this weekend, July, the, what is it? The 14th and uh, 13th and 14th or 14th and 15th. Yeah. Yeah. 14th and 15th, Friday and Saturday, uh, this coming Friday and Saturday. And you can call community Bible church at 843-525-0089. If you want to register online, my wife got an email yesterday from a 62 year old woman. She said, my children are grown and so forth. Do you think I should go? And she said, absolutely. You should definitely go. Uh, it, it will be life changing for a lot of women and for some women who already have a handle on these truths, it will take you further uh, in your ability to communicate them to the next generation. And of course, older women are to teach the next generation these truths. But most that's why I say there's a lot of nonsense going on today in modern day women's ministry that has very little to do with the pattern that God gave us in the Bible from which uh, becomes the lens in which women should teach the whole of scripture. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Neil from the San Padre Islands area of Texas wants to know whether it's scriptural to say, God bless you. He says, my grandmother used to say it. I don't think there was anything wrong with that. Um, you know, don't you want God's blessing on a person's life? Uh, you know, I think you certainly would, even on an unbeliever's life. Uh, I, I think sometimes uh, we use it though flippantly. 
And so it needs to be done thoughtfully and, you know, may the Lord's blessing be on you. We see many uh, benedictions like that in the Bible where they are asking for God's blessing. May the Lord keep you and guard you and so forth. And so these are good things. There's nothing negative about it, but don't use it in vain. Um, Just like people sometimes use the name of God in vain, do it thoughtfully and it can be very meaningful. Very good. Spencer from Locust Grove, Virginia. And by the way, I should say there's an assumption that Christians do that because there's an admonition in John's epistle not to just flippantly ask the Lord's blessing on a cultist leader. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and you don't say, well, God bless you because you don't really want God's blessing on their falsehood in their ministry. So there are some restrictions, but I say that to say there's an assumption that it, it, it is done by believers. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Spencer from Locust Grove, Virginia writes, will a person who's Jewish and dies without trusting Jesus for their salvation be saved? Some with this view cite Romans 11 and state all of Israel will be saved. Is there hope for a Jew simply because they are in God's sight who is dead and didn't trust Christ to spend eternity in heaven? Is there a name for such a position? Well, there are some people who've made that conclusion and they're incorrect because Romans 11 needs to be understood in the context in which it's written and in the whole genre of scripture. So God gives a a plan for the people of Israel. And of course he used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming of the Messiah. And he will use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming of the Messiah. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 are grossly misunderstood even by reformed theologians of our day. And the term reformed theologian has been a term that's been kind of robbed from uh, broadband uh, mainstream evangelicalism that it tends to uh, apply just to a certain segment of of the body of Christ, just like the term charismatic. I hope if you're born again, you're a charismatic Christian and that you believe that God gives spiritual gifts, but the term unfortunately has been kind of sucked out of uh, evangelicalism because if you say, well, I believe in spiritual gifts, oh, you believe in speaking in tongues, well, maybe not like you do. So same with the term reformed theologian, but uh, Romans 9 deals with Israel's election. Why did God choose Israel out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah? He, He didn't choose the people of Ireland or the the people of Germany, he chose Israel and for a reason. Romans 10 deals with their current rejection. Why are they in unbelief? And Romans 11 deals with their future restoration. And Paul asks us as Gentiles to be humble about our view towards Israel. And so there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved. When will that happen? We're going to study this in our exposition of Revelation. And if you don't have a church to go to and you're listening today, I invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We have two services at 9, 15, and 11. And we are working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Revelation. And this Sunday, we will enter now into chapter 3. But when we work through Revelation, we will see God's unfolding for the people of Israel. And he will use them to bring Jesus back. And there's going to be a, a mass conversion of the Jewish people during the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah refers to it. We call it the tribulation. It's also called the great tribulation, where the Jewish people are going to recognize that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of the world, and they will believe on Yeshua as Hamasiach, as the Messiah. Those are great days. They're coming, and um, exciting days to, to think about. We're out of time, but thanks for being with us today for the Bible Line. 